Well, good morning. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, um, we'll pick up where we left off, I think a month ago, there toward the end of the chapter, starting in, in verse 18. And I just want to preface this as we, we come here with a request to, to pray for me, um, for the preaching of the word, to, to pray for um, pray for yourselves. I also want to preface this with an explanation. If it seems like I spend a lot of time over the next few months talking about suffering and service and submission, it's by God's providence. It's not my, my design. Um, a month ago, I talked about submitting to governing authorities on Wednesday. Um, this past Wednesday, I talked about submitting to earthly masters, which is part one of two. Um, the next Wednesday, I'll be here. The next Wednesday, we'll all be here. It'll be submitting to earthly masters again. This text starts with wives, submit to your husbands. As soon as I finish this, um, we'll move on to fathers and, and children submitting to their fathers and then masters submitting to their earthly servants here in Colossians. And then by the time we get that done over in First Peter, um, we'll be talking again about wives submitting to their husbands. So I'm sorry. And if you pray for me, I'm not okay. And Lord willing, I'll be making sure that you're not okay at the end of this. But it really is... I think a, a design from the Lord for our church, um, something that has been really sort of breaking me down and conforming me to the image of Christ. I think service, submission, suffering really is, in one sense, sanctification. Um, as Paul mentioned this morning, sanctification is painful. Submission is sanctification. What is, what is given to us to imitate Christ in for the Christian in the scriptures is not his exalted lordship. It's not his authority over everyone else. It's a call to come and die. It's a call to take up our crosses and follow after him. And so to the extent that we do serve and we suffer and submit to all the authorities that are given over us, that is to the extent that we are Christ-like and that we are imitating Christ and, and proclaiming the work of Christ to those around us. So that's what we'll be talking about today within the context of the family, And over the last few sermons in Colossians chapter 3, we, we've seen Paul's description of sanctification as a matter of putting off and, and putting on. Putting off in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, our, our ways of thinking, what is earthly and, and, and spiritual, or sinful rather. What, what marked us as those who were perishing apart from Christ and who had no hope or understanding or light. Putting off essentially what is no longer true of us, who have been raised with Christ and have died to the old man and are now new creations in Christ Jesus and instead putting on in our lives what is true about us in Christ. And as we go even further this morning into the ways that Christ reconciles all things to himself and sanctifies all of life for the Christian, we turn from the body of Christ that we talked about last time, the rule of peace and the body of Christ, how we cling to and serve and love one another in the church we turn from that to the rule of Christ over what I would say is the single most essential social institution in our lives, and that's the family, the home. This gospel peace and Christ-like unity and mutual service that is to be found and fostered in the body of Christ in the church is meant to be also carried to the home and lived out there. And in some sense, then, we're coming from the theoretical, all the, all the different ways that we are to think about serving one another, and we're putting it into the very practical. We're putting it into the daily rhythms of our lives as Christians. We don't live every day with one another in the local church, though to some extent we should be trying to, but we are every day with our families. From a, de a devotional perspective, the commands found here in this passage might also be the most difficult for us to live out faithfully. What you are at home, you are truly. What you are at home, you are all the time. What a man or a woman or child is at home, that they are really. Because it's in the home that we are most prone to show the genuine condition of our hearts. That we're, we're most comfortable. It's in the home most often that the things that arise that we are to put off, that, that's where they surface. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from our mouths. Those are most often practiced not where everyone sees, but where the fewest people see in our homes. Is who you are. And because that is true, 
who we are in the home is really the litmus test for whether we have truly been transformed by the gospel. Whether Christ is really the, the rest of our new hearts in the home, the theme of our marriages, the strength of our parenthood. It is in, it is in these day-to-day workings of our lives that the gospel of Jesus Christ renews us or we have not been changed by the gospel. And yet for so many Christians, I fear that the home and the family are where the least renewal seems to take place. Where, where the most dysfunction and alienation and sin happen in the homes of professing believers while they're... Relationships with those outside the home are apparently sanctified and, and transformed. This even happens for pastors. Fellow, fellow church members and pastors and even the lost sometimes receive more love and care and attention than the members of one's own household. Yet sanctification for a Christian that does not begin in the home with the family is not true growth in the grace of Christ. It's just a religious veneer over, heart, over a heart that has not been changed by the gospel. If, if your Christianity is a practice that you take up as you cross the threshold of your home and walk out into the world, it's not genuine. It's a mask over an unbelieving heart. The patterns of living that Paul gives here concerning Christian households reveal whether that is really true of us. Because if Christ's work of redemption upon the cross has not delivered us from the power of sin in our homes and our families, in these areas of our lives, then we have not been redeemed at all. As Sinclair Ferguson says, the gospel has to work here if it works at all. And those roles that are laid out here in Colossians 3 for wives and husbands and parents and children are not just rules from God about how family works practically. They are the redemptive transformations of the way that Christians live in the home after the image of their Savior. They are only possible for those whose sins are forgiven and who have died to sin in Christ. They are our gospel graces here that God crowns Christian lives with in Christ as we become by His Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, at the beginning of his section on Christian love, imitators of God as beloved children walking in love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. These, these rules or these roles for the family are really the ways that redeemed people joyfully submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Ephesians 5.21. These patterns of living with one another in the home are the marks of what it looks like. Not just when the husband comes to be the authority of the home in a complementarian system, but rather what it looks like when Christ begins to rule in the heart of every family member. This is God's beautiful pattern of, of really the new family. Not just the family that's structured the right way according to the created order, but one that is created anew in Christ Jesus. And so really, to that extent, they are descriptions here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. These are, these are descriptions of what it looks like when these family members are sanctified. What a woman looks like when she becomes more like Jesus in her wifehood or motherhood. The way a, a man takes on the character of Christ as husband and father. The way a child imitates Christ in his obedience to the will of the earthly father of his earthly father and honors his mother. They are marks of the gospel in the most basic human relationships that we have. And I think without these marks, I think there is great cause to be concerned about whether you have come to believe the gospel at all. Because a Christian who is not like Christ in the home is not like Christ at all. And that's why Spurgeon or Moody, whoever said it, can say with full conviction that he cares nothing for what a man might say of Christ or the gospel if he mistreats his wife. Same can be said of wives and their husbands, professing children and their parents. Why? Because one can say anything they want about Christ and show that they do not believe it in the way that they treat their family. If a person is truly transformed by the glorious gospel of God's grace, if the, the body of sin has been brought to nothing and they've been given new hearts and they've died to their sin and the power of sin and have been raised with Christ, the home is always where that transformation starts. So I want to read the text this morning. I'm going to back up just to verse 12 of chapter 3 um, through, through verse 21 and then pray and ask the Lord to help us and we'll dig in. But starting in, in chapter 12 or verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Father, I thank you this day for your word, for your people, for the time that we have to gather together, Lord, and worship you through your word because of your son. I pray, Lord, that you would humble me more and more under your mighty hand so that you would exalt Christ. I pray that you would guard my mind and my mouth, that I would not go beyond what is written. Lord, I pray also that that these would not just be duties to us, Lord, convictions, but, but delights as we seek to be like Christ in all of life. Help us to rejoice in the, the transforming power of the gospel, Lord, that we have, have witnessed and become partakers of in the Lord Jesus. Help us to lift him up as holy in our minds and serve him not only with our lips, but with our hearts and our hands. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So as we, we come to these, what, what the ESV titles, Rules for Christian Households, this really is, I think, the first application of a general exhortation that Paul gave us in verse 17. It says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think this also sets the tone for the way that we go about following these rules. It's possible to achieve the right form or the right function of a Christian family, right? To have a monogamous, uh, one man, one woman, husband-wife relationship with generally obedient children and not follow the commands that, that Paul is about to give to us. It's possible to have in that right structure nothing of the gospel fellowship that Paul is insisting on here in Colossians. To do none of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even unbelievers can have a one-man, one-woman marriage and relatively well-behaved children. It might not be as common, but there are plenty of conservative, moralistic unbelievers who have no idea what the gospel truly is. Paul's point is that not just the form of our family, but the way that we relate to one another in the family would proclaim the truth of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. What Paul is after are family relationships that can only be a product of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I know there are only just four short sentences here, but there is much to work through and even a brief survey of these commands. And so I want to give you, first and foremost, this month, the rule of Christ in the marriage relationship. And, and next month we'll pick up here with parents and children. And we begin with marriage not only out of necessity when talking about the structure of a family, but by design. Marriage is truly one of the most important places to live out the gospel, to live out your faith in Christ. And incidentally, it's, it's one of the first institutions that was corrupted by the fall, and it's one of the first institutions that, through the gospel, is reconciled to God in Christ, restored and redeemed from the curse of sin and the gospel transformation of a husband and wife. We see the corruption of, of the marriage relationship in Genesis 3, right at at the very outset of the fall. In verse 15, God says to Eve, He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In the very moment of the fall, sin entered into the created order of marriage, and it corrupted the way the husband and the wife would relate to one another. Not only is the fruit of marriage, the, the pain and hardship and childbearing corrupted, but, but the fellowship is disrupted. The, the wife's sinful desires are now for her husband. Now, you could also translate that contrary to or against her husband. Her desires are not for her husband in the sense of affection or attraction, but usurpation. She wants to be what he naturally is in God's created order, the head, the authority. She also wants to be what he now is in his sin, the dominating force of the marriage relationship. Her desire is for her husband in the same sense that, that sin's desire was for Cain in Genesis 4. Sin wanted mastery of Cain. 
So in the sinful corruption of the fellowship of marriage, the inclination is in the heart toward rebellion, to disrespect, to domination. And and that same sinful inclination is also found in Adam, not just Eve. As the husband, God says, he will rule over her. This kind of ruling is not God's design, but a corruption of it. It's It's a despotic, tyrannical, abusive, unloving kind of rule. In a marriage that is corrupted by sin, the wife is a rebel and the husband's a tyrant. The husband's an absentee authority, leaving behind biblical sacrificial consideration. It's, it's not cooperation lovingly. It's selfish competition. It's, it's using the other party to appease your own appetites or desires and designs. And ironically, those secular marriages in which the wife practices No such thing as submission and the husband pays no attention to biblical responsibilities are actually marriages in which both parties are not the most free from responsibility, but the most enslaved to their sin. Simply put, marriage without Christ and without the gospel does not work. It's not enough just to to fall in line with the created order of marriage. The created order is corrupted by sin. It needs to be redeemed. Even if a couple stays together, they will never truly be together. We'll never truly be reconciled in the biblical sense of unity. But, but Paul tells us in Colossians 1, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ and, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And that includes in Colossians 3, the marriage relationship. It's, it's brought back from the brink of sinful destruction and restored as a demonstration of Christ's saving power. In Ephesians 5, it's the revealing of a mystery, Paul says, that that God's pre-fall design for a man to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife was a foreshadowing of Christ's union with his bride, the church. And within that church, the marriage relationship is now to be a beautiful display of the truth, the glory of his gospel, a foreshadowing of Christ's eternal communion with his people beyond the pale of death and sin. I, I don't want you... As a single Christian or an unmarried Christian or widowed Christian, to hear this this morning and, and, and think that you can't get value from this passage or this sermon, that, that you cannot be as Christ-like even as those who are in the marriage covenant, if this is a way that we are sanctified, you can listen here, Christian, and go beyond even the current shadow of, of redeemed marriage to the reality to which it points. If you are in Christ, you are in the new covenant of which marriage is but a picture. You can serve the Lord with gladness and seek growth and expansion of the kingdom of God, just like any married couple, because God's kingdom does not grow through childbearing. God's kingdom does not grow through marriage. It grows through regeneration, through transformation by the gospel. And even as a single Christian or unmarried Christian, you may see that gospel picture which a godly marriage paints and rejoice in the truths that they are displaying about Christ and his people. The goal is not to idolize marriage here. The goal is not to lift up marriage as the way in which we become sanctified, but to worship Christ as the fulfillment of marriage and all other godly relationships. And those who find themselves in this condition to give them hope and to give them a way that they are to serve Christ and glorify him. In their condition. So for you married couples, your marriages are important not only for the practical blessings that it brings your family and your children and society when your marriage is conducted well, but also because it is a visible display to all. It's a reenactment, in a sense, of Christ's loving relationship with his church. It's a portrait of Christ for the unbelieving world. It's a display of God and his covenant relationship with his people. And therefore, the earnest desire of every married couple in here, every married Christian in here, should be to accurately and attractively reflect the relationship between Jesus and his people. Not to distort it or to become a caricature before unbelievers. It should be the most praiseworthy and permanent feature in society because it is itself, as Piper says, a parable of permanence. It points to things that are eternal. It testifies most clearly to things eternal. Nowhere else in Scripture is the love of Christ in the gospel more directly given as a pattern to be followed. Conformity to Christ is the purpose of marriage. It's not the only way to conformity to Christ. Marriage is not. But conformity to Christ is the purpose of marriage. Marriage exists for Christ. And therefore, it fits right into the heart of Paul's writing to the Colossians, who are above all things, to seek to be like Christ. So 
to that end, I want to focus here on these two commands in verse 18 and 19. The commands, the, the conditions in which they're to be carried out, the qualities, the way that we carry them out, and the Christ-like character in both the wife's and the husband's marital role. First, we have a word to wives in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul expands that in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And we begin here with where all the apostles begin when speaking about marriage in a family. We might wonder why the apostles do start the way that they do. Here in, in Colossians, here in Ephesians, there in First in Peter. We should be starting with husbands, right? Doesn't it all start at the top? It all starts with the authority over the household. Isn't that what the apostles should start? Was this a, an error in translation here? But they don't. In fact, every one of these New Testament passages where it addresses the family, it always starts with wives. It's not an argument for egalitarianism, but that should be something we consider. It should tell us something about the essential nature of the wife. The mother and her role when it comes to a home that is ruled by Christ. As much as the Lord has made the husband the head of the home, I think biblically we can say that the wife is the heart. She's the heart of the home. It's a godly wife and a godly mother, a Christ-like woman in the household that makes headship of the husband possible practically. It's, it's the very first command or responsibility given to wives here, and, or that very first responsibility given to wives is to submit, to be subject. Not be subjected, but to be subject, to submit. No husband is biblically permitted to command this submission. To demand subjection. His authority is not given to ensure that the wife falls in line. Submission is not the husband's to demand. It's the Christian wife's to willingly give. It's her act of service. His leadership is empowered and preserved by his wife's willing and sincere submission. Not, not to men everywhere, but to their own husbands. To the one man God has placed over her and given to her as a blessing and an intimate possession. For a husband to try to force his wife into submission is to take away her way to serve the Lord in her marriage. Because God desires not simply sacrifice of the hands, but obedience of the heart. The, the participle here for submit, I think, should be very familiar to our church by now, if you've, if you've been here on Wednesdays. It's the same word all the way through. There in First Peter, it's hupotasso. Here it's the same participle. It describes both an attitude of the heart and a pattern of behavior. The wife submits in the sense that she follows the husband's leadership and shows respect and, and deference to her husband externally, yes, but also that she desires from the heart to honor her husband and respect his position. That though you may be all too acquainted with his flaws and his failings, you rejoice when he takes initiative. You are eager to encourage him in his efforts to imitate Christ, and you are patient with him when he fails. That you honor him from the heart with your motions and with your mouth. And in fact, though this submission is in reference to the husband, it does not depend upon the husband at all. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. This command is qualified by one thing, one condition, not the abilities of the wife, not the education or the knowledge or the skills of a wife in comparison with her husband. It has nothing to do with competency or career or wisdom. It also has nothing to do with the character or the worthiness of the husband. 1 Peter 3. Peter's command for wives to be subject to their husbands primarily has in view a husband who does not obey the word. An unbeliever. One who is not easy to submit to. And they're to submit with humility and gentleness and love in a way that is to be an, an evangelistic tool. To draw the husband to the gospel and to Christ. There's also no limit on the time or the circumstances for the wife. She is to be subject to her own husband, Ephesians 5 says, in everything. All family issues, all decisions in the home, but she is to do so, Ephesians 5 reminds us, as to the Lord. Her submission to the leadership of her husband in the home is truly submission to the Lord Jesus. 
So the wife's duty to submit is not optional, even if it is to be voluntary. She looks not simply to her husband. She looks through her husband. She looks beyond her husband, and she sees her Savior and her Lord, who's given her the husband that she has according to his will for her own sanctification. And, and she grows to be like her Savior in the way that she serves and submits to her husband, regardless of his worthiness or spiritual condition. So that's the command. Those are the conditions in which wives are to submit. The command be subject. The conditions to your own husband, whoever he is, in everything as to the Lord. But that biblical reality, without more context, is often twisted. It's perverted. It's corrupted. It's turned into something that does not sanctify the wife but harms her. So what are the qualities of that submission? What does it look like to submit? And I think, I think John Piper is really helpful here in giving some examples of what Biblical submission for wives is not. I don't want to be stingy or keep those to myself, so I want to share a few of them with you this morning. Firstly, submission does not mean agreeing with your husband in everything. In fact, from the perspective of Christian wives in First Peter with their unbelieving husbands, that's impossible. How can you agree with an unbeliever on everything? You won't. Submitting doesn't mean thinking all the thoughts of your husband after him, agreeing with every preference, every opinion on every issue, even every doctrinal position. You're to be your own person. The point of submission as a wife is to become like Christ, not your husband. It doesn't even mean that you come to agree with every doctrinal position of your husband. As as Piper points out, submission is not leaving your brain at the altar. If, If unthinking, robotic obedience was the goal, Paul would not have used the word for submit that he did when he gave this command. It's, it's not enough for you to simply be subjective. You must be subject from the heart. You can't submit with your mind if you leave it behind or if you empty it. You can't submit willingly without being your own person, having your own will. No, but it does mean that even when you don't agree, even when, even when you don't agree with their position, you respect your husband's position. You honor and allow his initiative. And in cases where you may do so, without forsaking the truth or agreeing to sin, you defer to his decisions. That even if he's not right in your understanding, you don't have to be right or have your way or the last word. That that principle applies, I think, also to some extent to husbands. But it's a testimony of what Jesus is to a wife when she's able to entrust herself to the Lord. Even while doing good, to honor her husband, even at times when she does not have her way, does not agree, it's yielding her will to her husband. But that secondly does not mean that submission means that you can't try to influence your husband. In fact, Peter makes the argument in 1 Peter 3 that submitting in a Christ-like way is the very thing that does influence your husband, to be obedient to the Lord. Wives, your submission to your husbands is like your submission to Christ, Ephesians says, but it is not identical. It is not identical. The reason being that your husbands, and I don't want to shock you in here, wives, Your husbands are not Christ. You may have realized that at this point in your marriage. Maybe not, but you will. Your husband's sinful. Your husband's fallible. We're foolish at times. We're finite and fleshly, and we need to change. All husbands need to change. We need to be more like Jesus. And one of the roles of a wife is really to seek that change. To pursue it and promote it and encourage that transformation. But the way that you are given as a wife to do that is not the way to which you might naturally resort. You can't impose change upon a husband. You can't nag a husband into Christ-likeness. You can't push him into godliness. You can't drive him into church. You can't shame him into obedience. Would coercion and condemnation help you to follow Jesus? Then it won't help your husband. You're to seek your husband's transformation, but you cannot bring about that transformation. Only Christ can. Only the Holy Spirit can sanctify your husband. So you don't seek change in your husband like an activist, like a victim, like a prosecutor. You seek it like a sister in Christ. Biblical submission for a wife looks a lot like compassionate, gentle, faithful service. Gentle encouragement. Conduct that is so Christ-like that it wins disobedient husbands to the word without a word, Peter says. Biblical submission looks a lot like fervent prayer for your husband. 
for his wisdom, for his strength, for his leadership and his spiritual life. If, if Christians are called to pray for their governing authorities, to repent and to obey Christ so that they may live peaceful lives, how much more should wives be praying that for their husbands? For the sake of their homes. Biblical submission means that every wife functions as a faithful sister in Christ for their husband, so that if anyone is caught in a transgression, it says in Galatians 6, you who are faithful, you who are spiritual, may restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Nowhere is biblical submission meant to be a call to resignation over the spiritual state of your husband. In fact, biblical love as a wife compels you to seek his spiritual good. But biblical submission is the willful determination to submit for the sake of your husband, even if he does not obey the word, so that he may be won without a word by your conduct. That means you may be mistreated, neglected, rejected in some sense, insulted. I know there's a lot of controversy around those things now, but this is what God's word says. And to this Christ-like vocation, you've been called, Peter says. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. If Christ endured the unjust treatment of the very people he would die for on the cross, for their good, wives in some senses are called to the same for the sake of their husbands. Thirdly, Piper points out this does not mean that biblical submission requires a wife to put her husband's will before Christ's. Nowhere is that commanded. As a wife and a Christian, you submit to your husband only in a relative sense. Just like a governing authority or an employer, their will is respected up to the point that it clashes with the Lord's. And to that point, you remain respectful to your husband, but submissive to your true and ultimate authority in Christ. You may have seen documentary going around on Amazon Prime about the, the Bill Gothard movement. I've been seeing a lot more images shared from it recently. This sort of illustration of these umbrellas of authority. Right? Christ is the big umbrella. The husband's the, the next biggest umbrella, or maybe the pastor's inserted some there um, in some of them. Uh, the wife is a smaller umbrella under that umbrella, and then the children. But the whole premise of that is flawed. The home is not a strict hierarchy. The husband is not an intermediary between his wife and Christ. She has direct access to God through Christ. She does not need you, husbands. She has a relationship with Christ in her own right. And it is out of her own desire to be like Jesus that she submits to her husband with honor and respect and love. Husbands, your greatest fear in marriage should be that you might intentionally or unintentionally create a tension or conflict between your wife's inclination to honor you and her desire to follow Christ. That's a wicked thing for a husband to impose upon his wife. It's an unmanly, cowardly thing. And your wife has no responsibility to follow you in that, to follow you in the sin, to follow you away from fellowship with the saints, to follow you away from vital connection with Christ and his people. And to the extent that she ever feels torn between following you and Christ, you need to repent. Piper finally adds that submission is not getting your personal spiritual strength from your husband, fearing your husband. At no point as a wife should your strength of faith, your source of spiritual fruitfulness, or your hope be in your husband. Or in getting a husband. Good husbands do support and uphold their wives. But should you lose the loving care or the earthly presence of your husband, you're not bereft of strength as a Christian. You're not left without hope. God sees you. God has a purpose for you where you are. And even if your husband is is spiritually or physically absent, you may be a blessing to the body of Christ and an ambassador for Christ's kingdom. 1 Peter 3, when Peter describes the way the holy women of old used to adorn themselves with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, clothing themselves in the character of Christ, Peter does not say that they became so beautifully adorned because of their relationship to their husbands. Peter says they did so and they were able to do so because they hoped in God. God is where your strength comes from, wives, not husbands. God is, is the one in whom your hope is in. Exhibited a pattern of being submissive to your own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. As a Christian wife, you're free from coercion. You're free from fear. 
You can become like Christ no matter what happens in your husband or to your husband. Your hope is not in your husband, it's in God. So if that is what submission for the wife is not, what is it? Paul, Paul gives an illustration in Ephesians 5. Submitting as to the Lord. That's expanded there in Ephesians 5.24 to mean, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. As the church submits to Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? I think you can make application yourselves this morning. How does the church speak about Christ? How should the church speak about Christ? How does the church speak to Christ? I'm not saying you need to proclaim the excellencies of your husband to the world. But you certainly should not be proclaiming his faults. If the church should be marked by anything, it's the love they have for Jesus and the way they freely follow him. There's no room in the church for the resentment of Christ's authority, the defiance of his position. There should not be in the church any terror of his judgment. Neither should wives be afraid of their husbands. But in everything, the church gives itself to the care and the direction of her Savior. That's what Christ-like submission is. It's a voluntary self-giving. A response of love to love. But the love that wives respond to in, in giving themselves to their husbands is not even primarily the love of the husband. It's the love of Christ. To which they respond in love for Christ by loving and listening to their own husbands. The extent to which you submit to your own husband and respect him and give yourself to him is a reflection, Christian wives, of the love that you have for Christ. How do you speak to your husband or about your husband? How do you seek to influence your husband? How do you love your husband? How do you give yourself to your husband? Would the way that you live with your husband be a spiritual benefit to him or a spiritual discouragement? Would someone be able to discern your love for Jesus in the way that you love your husband? That's the point. Lastly, what is Christ-like about this submission? Can I really say that becoming submissive to your husbands is becoming more like Christ? Yes. Paul says so explicitly back in Colossians 3 in verse 18. He says this is fitting in the Lord. Fitting. Submission is right. Submission is appropriate. No one in our world outside of the Christian church would say that, but God does. And it's not just fitting in God's created order. It's fitting in the Lord. It's fitting for a wife who is in Christ. Because that kind of submission is from Christ. It's fitting because it's from His own character. It's fitting because it's like Jesus and His example in redemption. Submission is not a female quality, wives. It's a Jesus quality. That's something we all need to to learn, I think. Christ submitted willingly to the will and plan of the Father in taking on human flesh. Though he was in the form of God, Philippians says, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and humbled himself. By taking on the form of a servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's fitting in the Lord also because your submission is as to this Lord who has now been exalted. High above every other name. At at no point in Christ's voluntary submission to the will of the Father on earth did he become inferior to God the Father. And if submission to the Father was not inherently too demeaning, too humbling for the Lord, if it did not strip him of his inherent worth, but rather was a worthy, righteous, fitting thing to do for the sake of his glory and our salvation, there is no biblical act of submission for a wife that is to be considered demeaning, inferior, or insignificant. What made Christ's example of submission to the Father significant was not that, not that he submitted because he was inherently inferior to the Father. He was significant because he is of equal worth and value with the Father. The wife is by no means inferior to the husband. And her gracious example of submission according to the will of Christ, after the example of Christ, even in her spiritual equality with her husband, likewise brings glory to the Lord Jesus. It's not a question of equality. As one commentator I read points out, Paul writes to remind us of our duties in this text, not our rights. Our duties, not our rights. I can put it more strongly, perhaps, and say it's not only about duties, it's about privileges, about delights. Can submission be a delightful thing for a wife to do? Yes, 
If in it she is being conformed to the will and image of her Lord. For you, that may be a difficult thing to even think about this morning. Think about submitting to your husband in this way. His, his leadership may be non-existent or worse, selfish and demanding. He may be completely insensitive to your desires and your needs, your spiritual condition. And the last thing that would delight you is to submit to your husband. In a voluntary way, with respect, with love, with grace for his faults, with gentleness, not nagging him or berating him or undermining him or shaming him or gossiping or complaining about him, but rather serving him and submitting to him what leadership he exhibits. But, but what should fill you with comfort and peace and joy this morning is knowing that it is perhaps when it is hardest to do so that your imitation of, that your imitation of Christ will be the most sanctifying. The most powerful testimony of Christ's lordship in your life is not when submission is easy. It may be that very submission when your husband is phoned it in spiritually that that compels him to submit to the Lord as you do. And there are really no biblical commands that were written for the times that they are easy and natural to follow. That was the case. Paul wouldn't have needed to write this down. Same thing with governing authorities. Same thing with employers. Biblical commands are not written for when they're easy and natural to follow. They are here in the scriptures to remind us and strengthen us when the bent of our flesh is to forsake the example of Christ and not follow him in the suffering. That's that's Christ's word to wives here in Colossians 3. Next he gives a command to husbands in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, first blush, that seems a little unbalanced, doesn't it? Right? The wife submits, serves, suffers, and I love her for it, and I don't say anything mean. I've got it made, right? Look at how Paul expands that in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Whoa. It might still seem a little unbalanced. Hopefully, maybe the other way. It's the same author, same time period of writing. Paul's call to love in Colossians 3 is shorthand for Ephesians 5. Everything that we find there in Ephesians 5 is in view when we look at Colossians 3. As I mentioned a few moments ago, submission is a voluntary self-giving, a response of love to love. It's not a difference in value, but a function. But this love and, and submission here in Colossians 3 are really two different aspects of the same function. Because as the husband loves, the husband is to love, or the wife loves, the husband is to love first. Just as we love because Christ loved us. If if you will, the wife imitates Christ when she gives herself to her husband. The husband imitates Christ when he gives himself up for his wife. He is to love, agape here. Totally unselfish. No self-interest. Not a reaction to affection but a love that that only seeks the highest good of the other person, to prioritize her needs and her interests before his own. This is the defining quality of headship in the home. And I don't think we hear this often enough. When we hear the word head, I think the connotation for us is typically authority. And, And there must be authority involved because of the command for wives to submit. The analogy of Christ as head of the church in Ephesians, just as husband is the head of the wife. But you don't primarily see authoritarian language concerning the ways the husband actually relates to the wife. When it comes to exercising this authority, this headship, we don't find the command to rule. We don't find the command to command. 
Paul and Peter nowhere say, husbands, rule your wives. Husbands, command your wives. Husbands, discipline your wives. Husbands, control your women. I think the reason we don't find such stark terms in these passages is because it's not the authority of the husband that's primarily in view. The husband is not the king of the castle in the home. Christ is king over the home. You're the chief servant. All under the authority of Christ, the husband is a responsibility of leadership that is actually also a form of submission. Submission not only to what Christ commands, but to what his wife needs. It's not about dominance or preeminence. That's not biblical leadership. That's not biblical leadership in the church. That's not biblical leadership in the home. If anyone would be first among you, Jesus says, let him be the servant of all. It's a bit of a longer quotation, but I love the way John MacArthur frames it. He says, ask many Christian husbands to summarize their biblical duty in one word, and they will answer leadership. Scripture answers the question with a different word, love. There is is no doubt that God's design for husbands includes the aspect of leadership, but it is a leadership that flows from love. And is always tempered by tender, caring affection. It is certainly true that the husband is the head of the wife. But headship in biblical terms means not merely authority. It does not even include the kind of authority that many husbands want to assert over their families. It's not the fetch me my slippers mentality many men convey to their wives and children. It's not a king of the hill attitude. The husband is not to be a petty tyrant. His proper role as a loving, nurturing head is best epitomized by Christ, who took the servant's role to wash his disciples' feet. This is what you have the authority to do, man. You have the authority to serve. You have the authority to serve, to in meekness and tenderness and humility imitate the servant love of Christ for your wife. As head, you have no right to assert your rights. Your authority is not so that you can be served by your family, but so that you can serve them and protect them and provide for them. You are to do that. And if you are to do that as Christ did for his church, that means there is no limit, no extreme, no end or exception to this service in life. If Christ gave his life for the church, then there is nothing short of your very life. No time, no energy, no resources, no rights, no good thing that you have that you may withhold from your wife and your family. Your authority is to serve. Your authority as a husband is to die. Your authority is to spend and be spent for the spiritual good of your wife, for your family, for the nourishing and cherishing of your wife, for the holiness of your wife. It's patterned after Christ's love for the church, wherein Christ sacrificed himself out of love for the purpose of her salvation and sanctification and her presentation in glory to himself. That's headship. That's love. So what is your headship not as a husband? Firstly, it's not the right to subject your wife to yourself. The right to command her service of you, her mindless obedience to you. If your wife is obedient to Christ, she will submit to you. She might even serve and and sacrifice for you. In fact, if I had to hazard a guess... I don't think I have to guess here. I've seen it in our congregation. I would say that generally speaking, our wives do much more sacrificing for us than we do for them. I see that faithfulness in my wife, caring for the needs of our girls, caring for our home, caring for my needs. But it's nowhere given to me as a right of my position to demand that she look after my interests. It's also not a biblical idea that I should demand that she be obedient to me. I want my wife to submit, but I also want her to submit first and foremost to Christ. I care that she is obedient to her Lord. A Christian husband should seek and promote submission to Christ, not themselves. Submission to Christ. Because if your wives do submit to Christ, any godly submission that is to be spent your way will take care of itself. If you want your wife to submit to you in everything, point to Christ in everything. Point to His commands in everything. The point is not that your wife hangs on every word that you say, but that she hangs on every word of God. Secondly, headship is not saving your wife. There's there's a very real sense in which your role as a husband and as a head is to protect your wife from danger, even from spiritual danger. But the analogy is not given in Ephesians 5 of Christ being the Savior of the body so that you can get the idea that you are some sort of Messiah or little Christ to your wife. 
In no way are you superior to, to your wife. You are not, as husband, inherently more mature. You're not inherently more wise. You're not inherently more spiritual. You may not even know the scriptures as well as she does. I talked with a brother the other day about the sanctifying reality that was for him, the realization that my wife might know the Bible better than I do. Praise God. That makes your headship even easier. And we do our wives a disservice when we assume that being the head means that we are the means of all spiritual nourishment and encouragement for her. That growth in grace and knowledge must come solely through us. Growth in grace truly does come only from one source, but it's our Lord and our Savior. And it's dispersed through all of his people according to the will of his, of his Holy Spirit. I, I know of a guy that only lets his wife listen to his own sermons. That kind of thinking is unhinged. That's cult-like. It's authoritarian. That's not biblical. To make headship messianic is to start acting like a little cult leader of your family and not a co-heir of Christ with your wife. Thirdly, headship is not sanctifying your wife. I've gone to that passage in Ephesians a lot this morning, Ephesians 5, and many people, myself included, have often used the phrase, washing her in the water of the word, in reference to our wives. But who does that in Ephesians? It's not me. It's not you. Christ does that. Christ washes his church, his bride, in the water of the word. He sanctifies the church with the word. And if your wife is a believer, that includes her. Make no mistake, husbands. And I've got to be careful here. But your wives do need to change. Your wives do need to change. They're not as much like Christ as they could be. They need to change as we do. But they, they don't need to be conformed to your image. They need to be conformed to Christ. And it's not your job to make them holy. You can't make them holy. It's not your job to discipline them or rebuke them. Your wife is not your child. Or to impose your own standards of good conduct upon them. You seek your wife's transformation by loving her in such a way as to promote and encourage and provide her spiritual development as much as possible. You submit to her needs and seek her sanctification in much the same way that your wife does for you. Praying for her. Ministering to her the word by which Christ cleanses her. Loving her in a way that models the Lord's love for her and directing her toward Jesus in everything. So what is biblical headship? Is love, it's sacrificial. It's a giving up of yourself. Self-sacrifice. It's marked by consideration, understanding, as Peter says, gentleness. You want to understand her heart and her fears and her anxieties and her concerns, her dreams and desires, her questions and her needs. It's, it's often... It's often in the form of listening to your wife. Listening to your wife. It's deference to them as the weaker vessel, Peter says. Not weaker in mind. Not weaker in faith. Not weaker in constitution. It's leveraging your created physicality for her protection and her provision. She's not the one lifting heavy stuff around your house. She's not the one lifting up the heavy concerns of the house. It's communion with her. You spend time with her. You are a friend to her. You see that in the Song of Solomon. How is the wife rejoicing? Because her husband is her dearest friend. Friend. You're spiritually a brother to her. You are her co-equal in Christ. You love her in all things, not for what she can offer you, but because of what you can offer her because of Christ. The husband is essentially always asking, how can I serve my wife? How can I provide for her needs? And you're not asking selfishly there. It's not, how can I keep her happy so she leaves me alone? You ask instead, how can I help her to be holy so that she grows closer to Christ? How can I help her to grow to be more like Christ? How can I make this relationship a spiritual shelter and a joyful encouragement in her walk with Jesus? And whatever the answer to those questions are is how you structure your life. That might mean giving up some hobbies. You might spend your spare time differently than you would have chosen. Do you know that nowhere in the Bible is me time given as a right for husbands? Right after the new temple in Ezekiel, I did not find measurements for a man cave. It's not there. No part of your life that your wife and children are not meant to have access to and a right to claim. You're not your own husband. You were bought with a price. And the one who purchased you has given you 
has given you to your family to be an extension of Christ's loving care for them. If anything gets in the way of that, it is to be put off. You're not doing your wife or your family a favor by serving them. Right? You didn't save them from, from poverty. You didn't save your wife from singleness or loneliness. In fact, if you're anything like me, husband, you need to be waking up every morning and praising God for the miracle that is your marriage. The fact that you have a wife at all who is willing to marry you is a testament that God still does miracles today. And that God has transformed you in the gospel. Your love for your wife is a love that seeks her sanctification, that longs for her Christ-likeness, and that hates anything that gets in the way of that. You are to be a shield, a suffering shield between anything discouraging or evil or profane that would disrupt your wife's communion with Christ. You are to suffer for her sake so that she might gain Christ. You are never a temptation for her to sin. You never introduce immorality to her. Not through your immoral conduct, not through your spiritual laziness or absence as a head in the home, not through your bitterness or harshness toward her, which would tempt her to bitterness or to despair. That's the opposite of love there in Colossians 3. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them in verse 19. Literally, do not be embittered toward them. You are not to resent them for the responsibilities that you have for them. You don't get to be cynical towards your wife. You don't get to hold the things that you do for her over her head. You aren't some philanthropist for providing for your family's needs. You are an unworthy servant. Unworthy of your calling, with a calling that you do not deserve, but that you have been given in God's grace. I need hardly mention how Christ-like this kind of submission is. For Christ, as the head of the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her so that he might... Present her to himself in splendor because he nourishes and cherishes her. And that church includes you, husbands. Even as it includes wives. What what compels us to live this way is not just the great example that Christ is for us in his work of redemption. It's that we are truly recipients of this. This has happened to us. It is happening to us. We're not living out a love that we don't have from Christ. And if the union that has been made between us and Christ is of any value, of any reality, then the physical and spiritual union between wife and husband that God has made will have the same flavor of sacrificial love and joyful submission that we experience in union with Christ. The gospel of Christ crucified for us and the reality that we have been raised with Christ are the foundation of our lives. It's the deepest and highest meaning of our marriages. It's why marriages exist. Marriages do not exist for sexual intimacy. Marriages do not exist for childbearing. Marriages do not exist for cultural transformation. It's a flesh and blood display of the covenant keeping between Christ and his church. If you know that love, pursue it. If you have that love, live it out in your home. If you follow Christ, truly follow him there. If you love Jesus, love him through your wife or your husband. Don't lie about his glory. Don't lie about his gospel. Don't lie about his love by breaking down the marriage that exists to display it. A biblical marriage proclaims the gospel. A corrupt marriage profanes the gospel. It lies about it to the unbelieving world. So this morning, wives, husbands, I know this is a very practically directed word from Paul here, from Christ. I would exhort you, think carefully how you walk. Are you walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Are you walking as those who have had the eyes of your heart enlightened, who know the will of the Lord and the riches of His grace in Christ toward all who believe? Are you being imitators of God and walking in love and submitting to one another out of fear of Christ? Is your home a seat of Christ's authority? Is your marriage a showcase of His redemption? For those who are unmarried... What may you do to encourage these fellow saints in their endeavor to proclaim the gospel through their marriage? Their success is your success. Their faithfulness is your faithfulness as a church. Because their testimony to the gospel is the testimony of the church. to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
These are things that you should be praying for them. Things and words with which you should encourage them. And these are the kinds of roles that you should seek if you're entering marriage with a fellow brother and sister in Christ. In one sense, biblical marriage is a missional calling on which you are sent with a fellow believer as an active partner in the proclamation of Christ's love before a world that is perishing. This matters. This matters. This matters not just for the structure of society. This matters for the redemption of sinners. Let us all rejoice in the gospel reality to which biblical marriage points this morning. Let us all submit to one another out of this love and reverence that we have for our Savior. If you'd bow with me. Father, I I thank you for your word. How it is sufficient for all of life and godliness, Lord. How it speaks on everything. Including our marriages, Lord. On our children. On our relationships, Lord. I pray that we would see beyond the the physical shadow to the, the spiritual, eternal reality that is life with Christ forever, Lord, and that out of our joy in what we have received, we would walk it out in ways that would draw others to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, salvation from the wrath of God, Lord, redemption and reconciliation in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.